This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, September 30th, 2011. I'm Caleb Brown. What does it mean to have a moral claim on one's own life? And how has rejecting the morality of self-ownership contributed to our financial crisis? John Allison is the former CEO of BB&T. He spoke at the Cato Club 200 retreat held earlier this month. The real causes of the financial crisis are philosophical, and the real cures are philosophical, and our battle is fundamentally philosophical. The real causes of the financial crisis are a combination of altruism and pragmatism. Altruism literally means otherism. It basically says that everybody else is more important than you are, and as interpreted by liberals, that means that society is important and individuals are not important. Altruism is not about benevolence. It's a very fundamental kind of worldview where others are more important. Where did the idea that everybody has a right to a house come, come from? Provided by who? Everybody has a right to free medical care. Provided by who? You know, my right to free medical care is my right to imprison a doctor to provide me with that care or to imprison somebody else to pay for that doctor. That is exactly the opposite of the American concept of right. In the American concept of rights, each of us has the moral right to what we produce, what we create, but we don't have the right to what other people produce and what other people create. Interestingly enough, while businesses can pay lip service to altruism, they can do the politically correct things, businesses really can't be altruistic in a globally competitive environment. So the default position, the default philosophy of business is pragmatism. In fact, we teach pragmatism in our graduate business schools. And what's the the rule in pragmatism? Do what works. Here's the problem. Lots of things work in the short term that are incredibly destructive in the long term. Affordable housing, subprime lending work for a long period of time and did incredible economic damage. The fundamental problem with pragmatism is you can't be rational and be a pragmatist because rationality demands a long-term perspective. You can't have integrity and be a pragmatist because integrity is acting consistent with principles. That's why you've seen so many violations of integrity uh, in business and certainly, of course, in politics. By the way, that's an interesting issue for us. When I think of Cato, I think of an organization that's fundamentally in the business of defending the principles that underlie a free society. We can't get from A to Z without going from A to D, but we need to be very careful, at least I feel I need to be very careful, not ever accepting D as the answer. Because eventually, D won't work, and we're the advocates of Z. We're we're the advocates of the principles that underlie free society. Combination of altruism and pragmatism leads to something I call the free lunch mentality. Take the last presidential election. Neither candidate proposed any serious solution to Medicare or Social Security, and if they had of, they wouldn't have been elected, right? That, That free lunch mentality leads to a lack of personal responsibility. And the lack of personal responsibility is ultimately the death of democracies. And our battle, in a certain fundamental sense, is really about personal responsibility. The Founding Fathers talked about the tyranny of the majority, and they were talking about the abuse of individual rights, freedom of speech, freedom of religion. But they also knew that when 51% of the people figured out they could vote a free lunch from 49%, pretty soon 60% wanted a free lunch from 40%, and 70% wanted a free lunch from 30%, and then the 30% quit. Just like the cause is philosophical, so is the cure. And the cure is fundamental and essential. And it is expressed by Thomas Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Each individual's moral right to their own life. Each individual's moral right to the pursuit of their personal happiness. 
Each individual is moral right to the product of their own labor. If they produce a lot, they get a lot, including the right to give it away to whoever they want to on whatever terms they want to. That moral prerogative demands personal responsibility because there is no free lunch. It also demands and rewards rationality. It demands and rewards self-discipline. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. As libertarians, many of us think about liberty, and liberty is incredibly important. But it's important to understand why liberty is important. And I think it's different than some people really get. The reason that liberty is important, it is necessary for us as human beings to think effectively. Everything that's alive has a method of staying alive. A lion has claws to hunt with, a deer has speed to avoid the hunter. We have the capacity to think. And our capacity to think is literally our only means of survival, success, and happiness. There are no free lunches and there are no shortcuts. In a fundamental sense, there's only one true natural resource, that's the human mind. You know, 10,000 years ago, oil was useless to a man. Today, oil is useless to a deer. Somebody invented oil. 15 years ago, telecommunications went through big, thick cables made out of copper that's expensive and rare. Today, telecommunications go through fiber optics that's made out of silicon, that's made out of sand, the most common material on the Earth's surface. Somebody invented fiber optics. In fact, if you think about it, all human progress, by definition, is based on creativity. And creativity is ultimately an act of thinking. Creativity uh, allows us to have improvements. And if you think about creativity, it's always different. But some, somebody to do something better must be different. Creativity is only possible to an independent thinker. Somebody that thinks like the crowd cannot be innovative, cannot be creative, cannot contribute to human progress. That's why socialist systems never make any significant contribution to human progress. It's why entrepreneurs are so important. I know we've got a lot of entrepreneurs in this room. If you think about it, all human progress is based on entrepreneurship because somebody has to take the ideas of science and the engineers and turn it into reality. When you prevent entrepreneurs from thinking, you destroy human progress. I, I reflect on that in, in my business experience. At BB&T, I had numerous occasions where we could have done things that would improve the quality of life for our clients and we could have make a profit doing it, and it was against some law somewhere. Today, the regulatory destruction of entrepreneurial thinking is stunning. The banking industry is particularly powerful. At, at BB&T today, I guarantee you the leaders of our organization are spending at least half, if not two-thirds, of their thinking capacity and 90% of their energy dealing with regulatory problems. They don't have the thinking capacity or energy to become up, come up with better solutions and, and improve the quality of life and create jobs. Now, our organization has 30,000 employees, and every 98, 9% of those employees are good people doing a good job. But the truth is, the top 100 people are the ones that matter, and maybe the top 10. And those brains of that top 100 people are basically in stop because of the regulatory attack on the industry. And that's, it's, not, it's not so true in technology, but across business today, you talk to any business person, the regulatory attack is destroying the entrepreneurial process. And thinking is a source of human process. And only free people can think. If you can't pursue your own thinking process, you literally cannot think effectively. It destroys your thinking process. So liberty is necessary for human survival and well-being because of our nature as independent thinking beings. And interesting enough, as, as powerful as liberty is, and that's what libertarians teach, tend to focus on, the real powerful statement of the Declaration of Independence is the pursuit of happiness. 
That was a world-changing idea. Before Jefferson, before the thinkers of the Enlightenment, everybody existed for somebody else's good. The good of the king, good of the state, the good of the church. Nobody existed for their own good. What Jefferson said is that each one of us has the moral right to the pursuit of our personal happiness. We're not guaranteed success in that pursuit, but we have that right. And that is the idea that changed the world. Created the most successful society in history and the most benevolent. When people have the right to their own life, they're naturally nicer to other people. In socialist and communist societies, at the end of the day, everybody ends up hating each other because everybody is a slave to everybody else. Let's talk a little bit about the pursuit of happiness. What does that really mean? At a concrete level, really, happiness is about us achieving goals that we personally value. It can be as simple as getting through college or getting that first job or getting a house or getting our kids through college or writing a really good book or uh, defending the principles that underlie free society. It's really about the achievement of those goals. And if you think about the goals worth achieving, they're hard work, right? There's some blood, sweat, and, and tears in that pursuit of happiness. So happiness is not about having a good time on Friday night. Nothing wrong with having a good time on Friday night. But it's about the pursuit of goals that have meaning to you personally. And interestingly enough, in order to pursue happiness, you have to have a sense of purpose. You have to use your thinking capacity, as I just described, to accomplish that purpose. But you also have to have the kind of self-confidence that comes from a high level of self-esteem to actually be successful against the many odds, the many barriers that you face in that pursuit. So self-esteem, in a fundamental sense, is the foundation for happiness. Um, sometimes, uh, by the way, people in business get confused. They think money's the end of the game. Nothing wrong with money. Money's a good thing. However, money's not an end. It can be a means to an end, but it is not an end. Happiness is the end of the game, and we are in the happiness business, in that deep Aristotelian sense. And to be happy, we have to have a high level of self-esteem. Self-esteem is a complex subject, but I want to share a few thoughts with you. First, self-esteem fundamentally is self-confidence in your ability to live and be successful given the facts of reality. So you earn self-esteem by how you live your life. Nobody can give you self-esteem. You cannot give your children self-esteem. Self-esteem has to be earned. Live your life with integrity. Raise your self-esteem. That's why integrity is important. Second thought about self-esteem, and when I talk to student groups, uh, this is the most controversial and I think by far the most important thought. In order to have a high level of self-esteem, in order to pursue happiness, you must believe at a fundamental level that you're capable of being good and that you have the moral right to be happy. In order to have a high level of self-esteem, you must believe at a very deep level that you're capable of being good and you have the moral right to be happy. Unfortunately, a very commonly held belief in our society that I suspect everybody in here has some of is that as human beings we're born bad. And, and the reason we're born bad is we're selfish, right? And selfish is bad. I can see Johnny in the sandbox, three or four years old, playing with his truck, having a good time, not bothering anybody. Along comes Fred. Fred would like to have Johnny's truck. Johnny doesn't want to give it to him. Discussion, debate, argument ensues. Mom, dad, Sunday school teacher, kindergarten teacher gets involved in that discussion. And mom says, hey, Johnny, give that truck to Fred. Don't be selfish don't be bad. Two great fundamental moral lessons being taught in the sandbox. First, where did Johnny get the right to Fred's truck? I mean, where did Fred get the right to Johnny's truck? You want to know where our social welfare system starts? Right there in the sandbox. That's it. 
The battle takes place in the sandbox. Because if Fred has a right to Johnny's truck, he has a right to lots of things, like medical care paid for by Johnny. What about the lesson to Johnny? And these, we're all Johnnies in that, this room. What's the lesson to Johnny? Don't go for what you really want. Your life is not as important as other people's life. Your life is not as important as Fred. Fred's need is more important than your life. Very profound moral lesson. It is interesting to reflect on selfishness objectively. Immutable, non-negotiable fact of reality. Everything that is alive must act in its self-interest or die. Immutable, non-negotiable fact of reality. Everything that is alive must act in its self-interest or die. A lion has to hunt or starve. A deer has to run from the hunter or be eaten. Trees shade out other trees to get sunlight. Amoeba take chemicals that other amoeba would like to have. Life is by definition self-sustaining action. Anything that's alive that does not sustain its life dies. To say that man is bad because he's selfish is the same thing as saying the sun's bad because it's hot. Gravity's bad because it holds us down. Sun should be hot. Gravity should hold us down. And as a living entity, we should act in our self-interest. The only option is death. It's very important that we define, however, acting in our self-interest properly because the liberals have done a great job of destroying this concept. And the way they've done it is by creating a false alternative. And here's a false alternative. To take advantage of other people or self-sacrifice. In fact, a lot of times when people talk about selfish, acting in one's rational self-interest, uh, they talk about taking advantage of other people. Here's the irony. Taking advantage of other people is not selfish. It's self-destructive. And you see that in two basic ways. First, you might fool Tom, Dick, and Harry, but pretty soon they're going to tell Jane and Sue and nobody's going to trust you. You see that in business all the time. And probably you know people you don't trust because they try to take advantage of other people. Taking advantage of other people just doesn't work practically. But there's a deeper issue. If you try to manipulate other people's consciousness, you're going to do a lot of damage to your own consciousness. In my business, I get to meet a lot of successful people. Interesting observation. I have never met anybody that I think was successful and happy that got there taking advantage of other people. Now, I've met some people that have made a lot of money that I think got there taking advantage of other people, and they're the most unhappy people I ever met. It is true that other people's consciousness exists in reality, but when we let go of the truth, to, to deceive other people, we damage ourselves. Taking advantage of other people is not selfish. It's self-destructive. How about self-sacrifice? How about self? That's our moral code in our society, right? We ought to all self-sacrifice. I want to I ask this question to students, but I'd ask you to ask it to, for yourself and for do you, what do you tell your own children? Do you have as much right to your own life as anybody else has to their life? Do you have as much right to your own life as anybody else has to their life? Of course you do. Why would you believe anything different than that? Taking advantage of other people and self-sacrifice, neither one make any sense. But there is a proper moral code. And the proper moral code is expressed by the traitor principle. Fundamental in life, we're traitors. We trade value for value. We get better together. In our business, we help our clients achieve economic success and financial security. Let's make a profit doing it. We're getting better together. In fact, life is about creating win-win relationships. There are only two stable relationship conditions in life, win-win and lose-lose. Whenever you get greedy and you set up a, a, lose, I mean, a win-lose, and we see that sometimes with spousal relationships, your partner will get bitter and you'll end up in a lose-lose. 
Whenever you get self-sacrificial and you set up a, a lose-win, you'll get better and you end up in a lose-lose relationship. In any meaningful relationship in your life, you should ask, what's in it for me? That is a fundamentally fair, objective question. But you should also ask, what's in it for them? Because if there's nothing in it for them, at the end of the day, there'll be nothing in it for you. And of course, it is in your rational self-interest to help the people you care about, that you value, because you value those people. Your family, your friends, the people you work with, they're valuable to you. In fact, if you love your children, helping your children is not a sacrifice. In fact, love is the ultimate expression of selfishness. If you don't believe that, I tell the story I tell the students. You're getting ready to get married. Obviously a really big event in your life. Your future spouse comes up to you and says, Honey, I'm so excited about marrying you. This is the biggest self-sacrifice I've ever made. <laughs> Not exactly what you want to hear, right? I believe it is in my rational self-interest to support United Way. United Way is an umbrella charity organization that does a lot of good in the community. It does it very efficiently. I wouldn't want to live in the kind of community that would exist if there were no United Way, and I certainly wouldn't want my children to live in that kind of community. Here's a challenge. What would really be required for you to act in your rational self-interest, and what would be the consequence? First thing, a lot of people think about selfish with two basic areas. One, they think about taking advantage of other people, and secondly, they see it as this kind of tunnel vision. You see these narcissist people, and they, that's the ones that, that, that get attacked. That's not it. In order to be selfish, you first have to hold a context. You have to ask yourself, what kind of world would I like to live in, right? And what would I enjoy doing, even though it might be hard work, what would I enjoy doing helping create that kind of world? What kind of world would I like to live in, and what would I enjoy doing to help create that kind of world? And what would that require? That you have a sense of purpose, that you take care of your body, you eat properly, you exercise, you take care of your mind, you learn, grow, you work hard at creating healthy human relationships, because that's very important to being happy as a human being. It's interesting to reflect on, on that. How many people actually are selfish in that regard? How many people ask that question? What kind of world would I like to live in? What would I enjoy doing creating that world? What purpose would work for me? Do I take care of my mind? Do I take care of my body? Do I work on creating healthy human relationships? And by the way, if, the, if everybody acted that way, wouldn't 95% of the problems of the world go away? The reason this is important, the attack on, it, on liberty really is an attack on selfishness. It's basically saying people don't have a right to their own life. And I would disagree with that. In fact, they, most people say that the problems in the world because people are too selfish, and they use all kinds of examples. I had a brother-in-law, drank 24 beers a day, got cirrhosis of the liver, drank 24 years of beers a day, died. People say he's selfish. Well, I say no, he was self-destructive. Bernie Madoff. Stole from his family and friends for 30 years. Can you imagine getting up every morning and having stolen from the people, most valuable people in your life? The guy admitted the best day in his life was when he went to jail. People say Bernie Madoff was, was selfish. No, that's not selfish. That's self-destructive. By the way, this is a pretty important issue with free market economists. They've got this wrong definition of selfishness as kind of doing what you want to do. That's not selfish. Selfishness requires a certain kind of discipline. It's about the pursuit of purposes, and it's about the pursuit of happiness. And, and if we're not willing to defend that people should act in their rational self-interest properly understood, we fundamentally cannot defend a free society. One last thought about uh, self-esteem. In the real world, self-esteem primarily comes from romantic love and productive work. 
I am not an expert on romantic love. It's probably a survival of species need, but I do have one insight. If you're looking for somebody to make you happy, if you expect your spouse to make you happy, you're guaranteed to fail. Nobody else can make you happy. And there are lots of people that would like to share your happiness. Productive work, and I use productive work in the broadest context, raising children, very productive work. For everybody in this room, and the vast majority of people on this planet, your work, however you define it to be, is the single biggest driver of self-esteem. Because you spend a disproportionate amount of time, effort, and energy at work. That is what makes work important. Something I say to all the employees of bb and you know, it's real important to BB&T that you do your job well, but it's far, far, far more important to you. You might fool me about how well you do your job. You might fool your boss about how well you do your job, but you'll never fool you. If you don't do your work the best you can possibly do it, given your level of skill, given your level of knowledge, you will lower your self-esteem. Something I tell students, if you don't do your schoolwork the best you can possibly do it, even if you get good grades, you will lower your self-esteem. Now, here's the good news. Do your work the best you can possibly do it. Given your level of skill, given your level of knowledge, you can't do the impossible, but do your work the best you can possibly do it, and you will raise your self-esteem. And that's more important whether you get more money and get a promotion, because it's about who you are as a human being. And there happens to be a gigantic social implication of that concept. Take a construction worker, a bricklayer, has a hard, tough life. Hard, tough life. Reminds me of my granddad hard, tough life. But he's successful in that life. He and his wife raise their children. Maybe his granddaughter becomes CEO of a publicly traded company. Maybe not. He has a hard, hard life, but he gets something really precious from that work. He gets to be proud of himself. He gets self-esteem. Take that same bricklayer and give him welfare. He may be better off materially, but he loses something very precious. He loses his self-esteem. You know, the liberals' sales pitch is basically around security. And that's what they talk about. And security matters in the United States. But this is not the land of security. People didn't get on a boat and come to Jamestown to be secure. The United States is a land of opportunity. The opportunity to be great, the opportunity to fail and try again. But most importantly, the opportunity of that bricklayer to live his life on his own terms, to pursue his personal happiness as a free man. That is the American sense of life. That is what's made America great, and that's really about what we are defending. Thank you very much. John Allison is the former CEO of BB&T. He spoke at the Cato Club 200 retreat held earlier this month. You can learn more about CC200 at our website, cato.org.